Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, and I'm joined by my co-host, second year child and adolescent psychiatry fellow, Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hey. Fourth year psychiatry resident at UCR, Dr. DM Wen. Hi, DM. Dr. Parks. And second year psychiatry resident, Dr. Alan Atkins. Hi, Alan. Hey, Dr. Parks. The, the, that was loud and booming, <laughs> but very forceful and good. I don't want to criticize it. The views expressed on Let's Get Psych are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services or UCR School of Medicine. Well, you joined us tonight on a good show because we are going to help you with your anxiety. And the title of this show is called Anxiety is Your Friend. Why? Because acceptance of anxiety is a crucial to managing it. That's my belief. I'd like to hear everyone's belief. And we're great. We're, we're, we're very honored. to. Uh, we have a great feeling. We're very honored to have as our special guest host, Dr. D uh, Brian Balvaneda, not yet a doctor, PhD candidate. He's our own intern at UCR's Counseling and Psychological Services. He's a great clinician. Students, please come and see him and schedule something. He's a candidate for, in the clinical psychology, psychology program at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. His dissertation examines the interpersonal effects of building self-compassion. He's from San Diego. He's currently in the doctoral internship at UCR. So let's get started. I, this is what I believe. I believe that the more that you resist your experiences and reject them and feel like your body and your mind is betraying you in the form of anxiety, the worse it, it becomes, the more difficult it becomes to manage. That's my belief. I, I, there, discuss what are people's thoughts about that. That's the foundation. You have to start there. Yeah, you know, okay, I I was reading something um and shoot, I now I don't remember where I was reading, it might have been psychology today or very well mind, but um I was reading someone was making a point about for people who have like chronic high levels of anxiety, there are times where um when they don't have anxiety, where they feel like that's a signal something's wrong. Yeah, oh, this cuz is super common in therapy. And I actually tell people this. I said, okay, so we're going to manage, we're going to be learning different exercises and different things to manage your anxiety. There will come a time when you will not feel anxious or you'll not feel very anxious and you will think, is something wrong? Maybe I should feel, be worrying about something. That is absolutely super common. I, I say that in advance. Have you ever? Yeah, I feel or like they confuse are, calm with boredom. Right. People are addicted to stimulation. I think we're all, that's, that's part of living in a, increasingly connected society people are addicted to stimulation but i i think we need to make the point here that um that idea that is something wrong when i don't have anxiety which i think also we feel in our own ways like people who go through lots and lots of years of academic training and stuff um that may be a, t a sign that it's time to get more familiar with yourself, maybe through meditation or mindfulness and, and sit with yourself for long enough that you can sit with that new feeling. Um, and, and, and that just make it clear that we are not saying, Hey, listener, go out and find a new source, source of anxiety ASAP because your life has, has, you know, gotten too easy. You know, and there's different aspects to anxiety. I think it's important to address all of them. So part of the reason I think people think that there might, when things are too calm, things might, might go badly is because there's a habit of thinking of worst case scenarios. 
always planning and preparing yourself. That's what a lot of anxiety is about, planning and preparing and energy generation. And so they get these kind of mental cognitive habits of predicting, hey, something might go wrong, something might go wrong. And so then when things are calm, they think, oh, have I not prepared myself? Should I be worrying about something that might go wrong? So it's kind of a, you want to address all these spheres, including the thinking habits, as well as the ways that you inadvertently do things to enhance or reinforce your anxiety also. But I think you make a good point that anxiety can be a useful signal, um, something that can tell us, um, you know, hey, we need to focus here because this is a, a critical decision point. We need to consider all the facts. Um, it can also alert us to danger or, or you know, some potential misstep. Um, it can also signal some part of our conscience um, maybe saying, hey, we need to look at this and readdress this um, because this didn't feel right. Um, or it could also be a sign of an area that we can address for potential growth. Like, for instance, when someone has some anxiety about their career and that prompts them to make a career change because there's too much anxiety or, or something. Or when people in a day-to-day situation, they come up with life hacks. Like I love all these cleaning or organizational life hacks. I love that. Um, or it can also signal adventure. Anxiety can signal, signal adventure. Like when you go on a first date or something. Yeah. So I, really I totally agree about, with that. Yeah. Tosha. That like, I think anxiety from how I look at it is it's, it's a very primitive fear response and it's a primitive emotion, but it's not necessarily a bad emotion. And I think everybody wants, considers it a bad emotion, just like anger is a bad emotion, but I think it's as much a part of us. And it, it's something that we can help guide us as much as any other emotions that we have. Mm-hmm. Well, this is what I think. I think that when you accept this as your brain trying to help you, this is why I kind of, I sometimes say this with clients, this is your brain making an attempt to help you prepare you, like you're saying, Tosha, DM, prepare for something or get ready for some possible threat or something. You want to accept that completely and recognize what is the nugget of information. Now, this information could be exaggerated because uh, you kind of trained yourself to get alarmed at everything and uh, or different things to prepare for all these threats because maybe your past experience or it could be there could be a realness to it but if you just reject it if you just push it away you don't receive that little piece that little nugget of information and then it just becomes something rejected what you resist persists and so you don't want to inadvertently reject yourself yeah. yeah that's a new one i haven't heard that one i like that I, I ripped that off completely. I heard it from, uh, you know, different kinds of uh, Buddhists uh, and Kristen Neff. Person on self-compassion has, oh, has man. used it too. Yeah, that's good. I like that. I think we're quickly becoming Kristen Neff fans here. <laughs> what what Dan awesome. said, I think is is right on. And, and this is another one of those areas where it's fun when you have a convergence of what a lot of different people in different fields are saying is true. And, and I want to... Um, I think to me, this evokes um, our Navy SEAL, Stephen Drum, who, who came on and, and talked about seeing these signals as 
signals and and that requires slowing down and it, it just converges with with mindfulness it converges with a lot of stuff we're kind of having realizing is is valuable in this moment in in um human time and and so the idea of slowing down saying okay i feel a feeling and let's actually although it's kind of an alarm bell signal not meaning that means i need to run around and freak out but just kind of like they say and i think this is from a book called the house of God, like the, the first thing you do in a, in a code, when a, when a patient has died is take your own pulse, um, not take the patient's pulse. And it's like, it's kind of like slow down make sure we're actually doing things as, as we should. And then, and then like DM was saying, that means taking the time to figure out, is this a good emotion right now? Is this a bad emotion? Is it just an emotion? Am I feeling anxiety? Um, do, do I know why? Can I question why I think I'm feeling it? And then really coming up with an answer for that before even starting to think about an action. I think this is all, if seen as a, as a signal, this can all be a helpful piece of data. Yeah. And if it's thinking part of it, there's something that's developed called cognitive therapy. And I, I, you know, I encourage folks to research it on your own. This is a way of systematically identifying what are the anxiety provoking thoughts that are kind of way off base or that are leading you astray? And what are the anxiety thoughts that may have some realistic kind of information for yourself that you want, you know, that has involved a self-improvement or preparation for something that's important that you might lose or something like that. So, it, you know, it, you can do some of this work on your own. There's different books uh, that are available that are feeling good um, is a good one. But, or you can go to therapy. I think that's, that this is an important part to be, have a practice where you alter your perceptions and your beliefs that are enhancing or making your anxiety worse. And meditation is, is a really, really powerful thing for this, particularly um, uh, something called MBSR, which you can Google, but you know, Dr. Parks, you mentioned, or sorry, Aaron, you mentioned um, we're trying to call Dr. Parks, Aaron, we're trying to all call <laughs> each other by first names and not call each other by our doctor names. So if y'all hear us doing that. So um, you said what what you resist persists. And I think that's really important because when we talk about the anxieties as, as a as a signal, I feel like a little bit of guilt, like we're leaving behind our patients who, okay, I have this signal. It goes on 24 hours a day and I can't sleep because of it. And you're calling it a useful signal. And that's that's when it's no longer a useful signal, right? When it persists mm -hmm. and when it when no matter people have gotten a signal, they say, Okay, I get it. Can this stop? And that's when we start to really be able to help people in treatment. Yeah, and in that case, I would take a, a note from you, Alan, as far as meditation. So that is actually foundationally, that's a good place to start. So you can start with folks, at, folks at home, you can start this today, later on today, after, right after hearing this podcast, is doing some mindfulness practice where you're just acknowledging your senses, what's, what's coming in through your sensory information. Uh, taste, touch, smell, textures, things like that, get into a sensory-rich environment, maybe it's nature. That basic skill can help you graduate or move because it's a smaller step to move to acceptance of your emotions, anxiety, like anxiety. So yes, meditation, meditative practices is a good foundational skill to have to eventually accepting these feelings in an observational, non-judgy way because it, as you accept and you kind of notice your emotion, you you really develop a tolerance of based on some of this non-judgmental kind of observation of your feelings, and that can set up deciding to do it and manage it differently than you currently do. So currently, there might be a lot of avoidance based on anxiety, a lot of alarm bells, a lot of 
calling people for reassurance and things like that, that inadvertently that's reinforcing the anxiety. I like one of those points about meditation with regard to anxiety is this idea that, I mean, just to put it bluntly, anxiety itself won't kill you. You know, often one of the, the common reasons people come to an emergency room is, oh God, I'm having a heart attack. When in fact, at least as I've been informed, please correct me if I'm wrong, that a panic attack can be a sign of a healthy heart. Your heart's still beating, you know, it's going a little bit in overdrive, but it's there and it's, it's doing its job. But this idea that, you know, you can do things if you're anxious and mindfulness really, I think, drives that point home, particularly the values piece that you see in ACT of, you know, what, what do you find meaningful and, and what, how does avoiding the, you know, thing that makes you anxious then also pull you away from the ways you find life meaningful? Um, you then, you know, add that to then why anxiety and depression are related and, you know, people start to feel less involved in their lives, less engaged in things that are meaningful. It really brings together, again, that this idea that, you know, anxiety is there, it's a signal, it can go into overdrive, but even then, you know, can you find a way, can you, with some support, with some help, with some practice, you know, uh, get involved with those things that, that you've been pulling back from because of the anxiety. Yeah, and ACT, I just want to make sure that everyone at home recognizes ACT is acceptance and commitment therapy. It has to do with um, uh, you know, being able to act according to your values, which leads to greater satisfaction and things like that. And to, yeah, I agree with you, Brian, that you, know, at, you can gradually learn to do things that are important to you during your anxiety. In fact, that is one of the keys to managing your anxiety. But start gradually. I think sometimes people have uh, to exaggerate expectations. And, or they judge you with themselves. Oh, I sh this shouldn't be a problem. Public speaking shouldn't be a problem. Oh, I shouldn't be anxious right now. I should just be able to do this job and be fine. Uh, and then they, that gets them, that creates actually more pressure. But you can gradually practice doing what you believe is good or important or healthy or a skill that you want to develop during tense situations, but just do it gradually. That's called also exposure. Now, we'll get into that a little bit later, but I just want to drop something controversial. I don't believe that much in relaxation exercises for anxiety. And it, I know it, it has shown to work, but it's very tricky. So and which so, ones don't you believe in? Does that include meditation? The ones, the ones, no, uh, for that reason, okay, the ones that it ends up being a power struggle with the client. You're struggling, you're power struggling with your feelings because you're, you're trying to relax. You're trying to force yourself to relax. And then you get disappointed when you... Uh, if you're just using that as your only strategy, why can't I do my relaxation strategies right now? I don't want my anxiety. When you can tell that, it, I don't think relaxation is very helpful. Wow. Because it, it, it tends that, to just... That's powerful. Wait, what are your wait, thoughts? Wait, I'd like to hear so, what people's thoughts hold on. are. Are you saying you think of relaxation techniques as almost like a distraction to anxiety rather than... It can be. Letting you desensitize to the emotion of anxiety, which can be very helpful. It can be if people are using it as an avoidant. DM, DM, go ahead. It actually sounds like distraction techniques make you anxious. <laughs> like it increases your anxiety, especially when you try to force. I think there is a point to be made that distraction, um, using distraction as a coping skill is not always helpful in making progress through overcoming the difficult, unpleasant feelings of anxiety versus being able to 
desensitize yourself to it and and gradually learn to sit with anxiety a little bit longer but i'm not sure i understand what you're talking about with the re- the problem you have with relaxation techniques i'm not sure if i understand well, what we're calling relaxation techniques i'm sorry distract i heard the word relaxation. hold on hold on if you're just joining us you're listening to let's get psyched on kucr and we're talking about anxiety is your friend and we're helping folks out there you can manage anxiety pesky anxiety that's plagued you. I've, I was one of, I had social anxiety. I don't know if anyone else wants to, to kind of claim their anxiety. I'll claim it. I had social anxiety. <laughs> and um, anxiety. Okay, th- yeah, thanks, thanks for that. Wait, what'd you say, Dan? I said I have testing anxiety. Oh, that's one of the ones I listed, yeah. Yeah, performance anxiety, social anxiety, it's okay. all in the same Let's kind of get family. back to this fly you put in. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is a big all right. Thing. You're trying I to know- distract us from the, from the okay. conversation on distraction techniques. All right, so one, yeah. one thing at a time. I'll get to distraction in a bit. Let me just finish up on this relaxation exercises. If I could, relaxation, first of all, in the research, relaxation ex- exercises do help with anxiety overall. Overall, they do. But here's where it can be problematic. If someone is expecting to apply relaxation exclusively and it's basically a power struggle with their anxiety, it will not be very effective. And so they it would happen, it's a combination of wanting to not deal with uh, their anxiety by through relaxation, not practicing enough, uh, wanting using it only as distraction, and um, having too high expectations. They, they're, they're, they feel like, oh, if I only do it a couple times, then it's fine. And so if I can detect that, it probably won't be very helpful. But what I will say, I'll say relaxation is good to lower your overall physiological level so that day to day, you're at it like a three instead of an eight. So we still got to know what are you, Aaron? What are you calling relaxation techniques, and how are you doing them? The 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 things you're mentioning do sound like really frequent, like tragic flaws, um, of what I guess might be called relaxation techniques. But I I can't. Are you talking about progressive muscle relaxation? Are you talking about deep breathing? Are you talking about meditation? And if so, how long for each one? This is what I've, because this is why, you know, when I see clients, I've seen clients, a lot of times clients have, have had lots of therapy uh, and then I see them and then they, they say, well, I, I tried deep breathing. I don't want to do deep breathing because the deep breathing doesn't work uh, because I still have anxiety. And then, so they've kind of given it. So I just ex- describe what, how you've used it and to tell me like, how, how long have you practiced it? Um, so, you know, sometimes they're, uh, you know, they're using it, like I said, you know, it's a distraction or a power struggle with their anxiety. But I will say that, you know, if the relaxation technique has to do with accepting an acceptance, a mindfulness-based, or it's a, a overall practice that you include in your routine, whether or not you have anxiety or not, you just do it every day throughout the day, like maybe two or three times a day, then it will be effective because you're not placing it at the time. Like this needs to solve my anxiety. I need to not feel anxiety anymore. So now I'm going to do these relaxation techniques. In fact, things like panic disorder respond very well to exposure. So you're you're exposing yourself to more tension. You're exposing yourself to more uh, increased uh, alert situations, but gradually. I that feel tends the, to be the very discomfort, Aaron. I feel the discomfort with the topic here, and I feel like we're we're taking a really good stab at it. But the more I'm thinking about what you're saying, the more I'm thinking this is gonna this would be like an hour to really parse. <laughs> which, which situation, which thing would be good for? For example, I think some of the things you're talking about, um, like chronic stress situations where 
it's not about facing the anxiety because people are facing the anxiety all the time. Like, a, like, you know, I'm thinking about doctors, med students, pro probably psych PhD students, uh, any kind of students in general, they're, they're, they are facing the, the music. It's just there all the time. They're not running away from it by doing excessive distraction techniques versus maybe a procrastinator meditation could or couldn't might or might not be like an excellent thing for a procrastinator. Um, I think some of this is about the time. So when people have bad expectations for it, it's like, I think a lot of people who aren't very well versed in this stuff, they say, I'm going to do this for four minutes and I'm going to expect that my anxiety is going to be completely gone. And of course that's not going to work. And of course it needs to be a practice coping skill, you know, Oh, this isn't working doctor. Well, how many times have you tried it? I've tried it twice. Well, is right. that how basketball works? Is that how swimming works? That. But, but no, then, I agree with that. For, for cortisol, for, I don't want to, okay. I don't, I don't know enough <laughs> big, like uh, endocrinology of it, but I, I believe for the important levels to go down, particularly with MBSR and with meditation, we're talking about the studies that have been done usually are to the tune of 30 minutes a day consistently. And so if you want to see your brain freak out chemicals, get bored and go down and, and you want to give them that sensory deprivation and that ability to kind of default to um, less of a threatened mode, you have to be giving this a real shot and you have to be persisting with in it with through your self judgment and stuff and just continuing to scan your body for 30 minutes for, for you to be able to expect that you're going to see something. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with that. I don't want to spend too long, much long on this longer because uh, yeah, relaxation techniques are good. It, it, is it the number one thing that's going to solve your panic disorder, your generalized anxiety? No. I don't think it is. I think there's. No, I do think it brings up an important point, though. That anxiety yeah. is a spectrum. Like all emotions, it's a spectrum. So what I tell my patients to to do is to kind of gouge, especially if you're a you're a highly anxious person to begin with, where you are on the spectrum, like throughout the day, like what your number is. If your number is a ten probably like relaxation techniques aren't going to work. Like you're, you're past that point. It's, it's too late at that point. We're kind of giving you like out of band to like, get you to like not pass out. But you know, if you're, you're if you, but your anxiety usually doesn't jump from a one to a 10, it escalates slowly, even without you being aware of it. So you have to kind of check in on yourself periodically. And I think that, the, that that's what the periodic reminders are to check in on yourself, to see where your anxiety is, begin escalating that number down. And then so that it never reaches that 10. Yeah. That sounds good. Well, kind of reminds me of um, the, uh, the, I believe the yerkes dodson curve, this, if you imagine a bell-shaped curve, this idea of a spectrum that, you know, performance is at its peak when our anxiety, I think it's typically around stress, but you know, stress, anxiety, those kind of tend to go hand in hand in many ways that, you know, the moderate level of anxiety is what actually leads us to peak in, in performance. And I think people, and then low levels, you know, we're under-motivated, not stimulated enough. Higher levels were overstimulated. We're really not capable then of, of focusing on our task or, or goal. We're so sort of caught up by the anxiety. So to bring it down, you know, like you said, from a 10 to like a seven or a six even is then where, you know, we, we want to have patients have the, the expectation that this is actually where I'll bring, I'll still have it, but at this level, it becomes useful versus an impairing thing. And I think that's what happens when people talk about anxiety in a negative way. They're talking about this overwhelming top of the spectrum kind of effect. Yeah, we, 
we've got to talk about exposure because that is a huge intervention that if you when you get the hang of this when you get a hang of exposure you can manage your anxiety for sure it's very very effective all right so exposure is about identifying construct a high fear hierarchy for yourself that means what are the things you most fear and then identify smaller things or situations that are a little bit less fearful for you and then start at at a small step start at the bottom and then gradually purposefully experience those so if and if your reaction to that last step is like that's too much go a little lower this is a can't lose kind of intervention for yourself go lower than that if you feel like that's too much go lower than that so if it's inside at your home or if it's imaginary you're just imagining the situation like a fear of heights or open water or public speaking whatever job interviews then you can do what's called imaginary exposure is that the lowest level think it all the way through and think it managing your anxiety doing the job interview right or um well the way you want to or being out in open water and feeling calm and relaxed then after you habituate with that after you feel the the anxiety tick down a bit you're ready for the next step and you want to do that next step over and over until again you, you don't feel the intense anxiety it, it kind of starts ticking down after you get an attitude of this your anxiety will go down drastically. That's my personal experience, and I feel like that's my uh, clients that I've worked with, the same kind of thing. What, but what I want to hear what people's thoughts are, what their particular nuances of how they've used exposure. I so, think people could catastrophize anxiety, right? And that's where I feel like the exposure therapy is the most helpful. I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like, for me, I find it most helpful when patients who could catastrophize to begin with they act out kind of like the worst situation and then if hopefully that doesn't happen and then the worst scenario doesn't play out then they're like okay the worst thing ha like didn't happen and it probably won't happen again i don't know is that how i'm supposed to think about it that yeah, yeah, yeah and that's a cognitive thing sorry go ahead brian yeah and, and i would say too one thing that happened so i've run a, a social anxiety exposure group which was one of my favorites just seeing clients grow like you, you said, uh, Aaron, astronomically really in their anxiety and their ability to be engaged in their lives when they've been used to avoiding. So exposing them to the situations they fear and showing them that they can manage through them. Um, but there are situations you have to prepare for where the worst does happen. Um, and then what happens then is helping a client learn, can you live with this? Can you cope with this? What have you you know, done to overcome this, this negative impact or, or is it attributed to the reason you think it is, which is sometimes part of that catastrophic thinking. So exposure is really, really difficult. And this is where I would strongly recommend, you know, working with a skilled clinician to support you through it because that can make it a, you know, a more manageable process, but it's still really, really difficult. And a lot of clients really do struggle with it. I think exposure can be an interestingly I, what you, what that's evoking for me, Brian, is is like shame attacking, um, which has been a huge amount of fun for me and for the patients I've done it with. Um, and I think partly exposure is as hard and difficult as the patient is sick with anxiety in particular. And if you do it with people who are depressed and have a component of anxiety, shame attacking can be such an energetic, such a behavioral activation and so much fun where, so for example, like um, I'm gonna call out a, a friend of mine, Jacob Towery in, in a, his, a lot of what he does in his 
um, team cognitive behavioral therapy practices. He takes people out, they walk around in the neighborhood and they sing and they dance and they do all kinds of embarrassing things. And, you know, I, th I think David Burns is doing this kind of stuff and, and, um, the it's it's a huge break from the monotony of the of the room of the you know the the therapy room and while that would be horrifying for, with someone with disabling social anxiety disorder it's really fun with some for someone with mild anxiety you know or or i don't know really fun but it's more fun we have um, one minute yeah, okay i just want to emphasize again and draw back to Alan's earlier point that for those with a clinical level of anxiety which is very different from what what maybe we've been talking about like other levels of anxiety, day-to-day -day anxiety or, or existential anxiety or the general term of anxiety, clinical levels of anxiety would mean that it is impacting one of your domains of functioning, be it your home life, be it your social life or your work or school life. Um, when it's impacting those areas, you want to get uh, a psychiatrist on board or a therapist on board. Yeah, when you can't, we, if, if you can fit it into your schedule, you got the insurance, definitely therapy is going to be a lot more effective because these are experts that can help you guide through. There are some good books out there. The Anxiety and Phobia Workbook, Mastery of Your Anxiety and Panic is also a really good one I would recommend. We, have, we didn't get a chance to talk about medication what, or about the, the types of medication. Did someone want to say something in 30 seconds about medication for anxiety? Be careful about benzos. Thank that. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Don't self-medicate. I think a lot of people self-medicate oh, anxiety away. Um, there are, you know, safer alternatives. Thank you, DM. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today we discussed anxiety. Anxiety is your friend and you can get help with it and you can conquer it. Thank you to our co-hosts, Drs. Toshi Yamaguchi, DM Wynn, and Alan Atkins. And thank you also to our special guest host, Dr. Oh, Sorry, I keep saying calling you doctor. I want to call you Dr. Brian. Oh, yeah. Uh, in just a few months, right? Yeah, you're a PhD candidate, our, our beloved intern at UCR, Brian Balvaneda. If you have comments, questions, suggestions for the show, you can write us at getpsychedonkucr.gmail.com. That's getpsychedonkucr.gmail.com. And you can listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform. If you like tonight's show, please follow us and post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. I've been your host, psychologist, Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched.